Hello and welcome to the Quacked Out Podcast. I am your host, Charlie Folkstead, joined as always by Reed Tingley. And today we have a very special guest with us. Uh, this is Ryan Winter, aka Sports Chat 503. You've probably seen his videos on YouTube. Um, any other nicknames we, <laughs> we need to call you by, Ryan? That's great, man. That's what they call me. <laughs> yeah, so today we're starting a very interesting project. Um, we want to go through the history of Oregon football. Um, and we are going to start at the very absolute beginning. Um, so there's really nowhere else to start. Uh, <laughs> so, so something we should keep in mind, like throughout this is that like, no matter how some of this, no matter how outrageous some of this stuff sounds, like it was normal back then. Like, if you're a fan of college football now, like it's still pretty outrageous with a lot of stuff, right? So like, yeah, just keep that in mind. Cause as I'm, as I was doing my research for this, I'm sure you saw the same thing, Reed. Some of this stuff is like, what? Like they allowed that to happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's a bunch of kind of wonky rules back then with restrictions on the forward pass and people aren't wearing face masks in the game and do like offense, defense, kicker, punter, uh, dogs and fans are running on the field. So it's definitely a different brand back then, but. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, let's start at the very beginning, right? 1894. Uh, this is the first season ever logged in Oregon football history. Um, played four games, I believe. Because <laughs> um, back then, like, there weren't even, we're talking pre like conferences, pre everything, right? I mean, it's like, who can you get to play? I mean, sometimes like, as I was going through this, like you're getting games against like the Mac athletic club in Portland, the Multnomah athletic club, you're getting games against like random high school teams sometimes who just like need to run, I guess. Um, just all over the place, a bunch of games against schools that don't even have football anymore. Um, you know, teams like Gonzaga and Whitworth and stuff. Like, it's just, it's kind of crazy, man. So, I mean, something we can point out, uh, the Ducks won their first ever official college football game. Uh, it was against Albany College, just up the road <laughs> on I-5. Um, was I-5 even around back then? Is that a stupid question? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, it was 44 to three. <laughs> and it was played in the spring. Um humble beginnings for sure. But I mean, early on in this era, right? Something I want to point out is that um, a lot of people think of Hayward Field as like Oregon's first field. It actually wasn't. Um, they used to play games on what they called Kincaid Field, I believe, or like Kincaid Ground, something like that. Uh, and it's actually where the quad is by the library now on campus. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting. All that's left is a plaque, but there were some from what I understand, some <laughs> pretty, pretty interesting games that went down there. Um, I mean, going through this first decade or so, like, there's not really even more than that. Like, there's very, very little to go off of. Uh, Reed, I'm sure you found the same. Like, there's just not a lot of data. I mean, you literally would have to dig up old, like, newspapers to find some of this stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What was, did you have any perspective on kind of that origin of things, Ryan, coming from kind of deeper roots in the Oregon family than maybe we have? 
I mean, yeah, I mean, there's just, there's all these, the names, you know, like the first coach is Cal Young. I don't know if you guys, you know, are familiar with Cal Young District in Eugene. It's a neighborhood now. You can go by the Cal Young Street, Cal Young's house or whatever, the farm area over there. Um, But yeah, I mean, they're crazy. They, they, they have games like over a hundred points, like, you know, and uh, you're right. It's just the, the era of football is so different. You know, actually, you know, come full circle, you know, I, I tend to think that the, the origins of college football in and of itself is fascinating. You know, they, they the ESPN did a great job with the, like, college football 150 or whatever they called it, where they went back and they did a whole bunch of kind of stories about where college football came from. And, you know, football basically started in college. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the modern game of football basically re- originated and was developed over time uh, at the college level. So... Yeah, at that point in time, you know, you're you don't you don't even have a pack eight yet. You don't have any sort of real structure. You're playing a bunch of schools in Oregon. You're playing uh, OAC, or you're playing you know Linfield, or you're playing you know Willamette, or all these schools that you know are now you know two A or whatever. Um, but yeah, the 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 whole thing was you know at that point in time, uh, just a running game, and they really didn't open up the passing game for a while, but. You know, what's unique about coming from, you know, our perspective at Oregon was, you know, when Chip Kelly first came in here, everybody thought he was so revolutionary, but he was actually doing a lot of stuff from this era. He went back and dusted off the old history books. You know, the Carlisle Indians was the the the, the group that was kind of really the first major uh, uh, group that was really doing stuff. Um, as yeah, Jim a, Thorpe. Jim, right? Jim Thorpe's yeah. team, right. You know, so that's Pop Warner. I mean, that's the original, right? So uh, going back to like some of those Carlisle Indian formations even, you know, Chip had three guys in the backfield or a movement guy to come back in there and, uh, would ha- you know, just the idea of just running that option alone, that, that all predates the forward pass. So it's kind of one of those things that when Chip got out here, he was kind of looked at as he was a savant, like he was making up new plays. And it's, actually he was just going back in the history books and refining plays that have been there for a hundred years. So I think there's a lot to be said about that era. I also think there's a lot to be said about the technology of the football helmet. They talk about that's a big changer, you know, in the 1930s and forties football started to kind of evolve a little bit. And then post-war football is totally different based on just the uh, technology of the helmets and whatnot alone. So, but Oregon had a good team. Oregon had, uh, uh, you know, in, in the 19, uh, early 1900s, 1910, 1920s, uh, they had a good team. They 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 did fairly well, and uh, they actually have pretty good history up to that point. So yeah, right. I mean, be proud of. <laughs> for real quick, one thing you mentioned that Cal Young was the head coach. Uh, Wikipedia tells me that he retired after the first game or left. Uh, <laughs> J. A. Church took over. <laughs> so how about this? Right, you start the year with a forty-four to three win in the spring over a different right. opponent, and uh, your next the rest of your season is two losses and a tie. Right. <laughs> Which um, for those not accustomed to hearing about ties, um, get used to it because <laughs> ties were a thing for a really, really long time. And I saw the last tie. I was there at the toilet bowl, 1983. I was six <laughs> years old. Oh, we're most <laughs> certainly going to get to remember that. It vividly. Oh, that. <laughs> oh, remember it vividly. Remember it very well. Yes. Um, so, I mean, again, as, as football is kind of developing, I think another thing we sort of take for granted is our mascot itself, right? Um, back then, they did, we didn't even have an official name, official mascot, anything. Um, and it was 
people just kind of started calling us the Webfoots. I mean, that's just sort of how it worked. I mean, we were wearing yellow, uh, you know, OAC back then would wear orange or whatever. Um, and you just have like, like you literally have guys playing in like sweaters basically. Um, so, I mean, what can you tell us about sort of the, the origin of the mascot from what you know? Because from oh, what yeah, I know, it's great. just like, they just picked up a live duck and we're like, here, this is our this is our thing now, right? Later on they did, yeah. So yeah, Webfoot's, you know, then again, the, even think of branding, you know, we don't, we don't have any of the concept of what that was then. Um, the, the colors weren't green and yellow. They were blue and yellow, like the flag. I remember we had the game where, you know, we don't really like talk about it that much, but what we wore we looked like looked like cow wearing those jerseys, getting the heck beat out of us. But that, um, you know, that was kind of a cool era that was trying to tap back into that, you know, previous time or whatever. But yeah, no, the duck, the story of the duck is great, man. I mean, I think it, I think people called us Webfoots more than we wanted to be called Webfoots. Um, obviously, just the amount of rain in the Willamette Valley is going to lean to that, and. Um, but yeah, no, uh, you know, just just the idea of even the duck, uh, the logo of the duck is a fascinating story, um, you know, with Walt Disney. And I mean, there, there there's a lot going on there. But yeah, we they used to have uh, an actual live duck. They had a couple, a uh, little mallard couple. Then they had them in the, the, the pond out in the, you know, behind Otzen there. And uh, it was a lot, actual live duck. That was the 1930s, 40s during the war where they were doing all sorts of weird stuff like that you know there's live animals still to be this day you know obviously we know ralphie and whatnot but uh you know having a live duck is maybe less intimidating than running a live buffalo onto the field uh but uh yeah and then the disney story is classic you know because len casanova had the relationship they had somehow got that into that relationship with uh with uh, uh walt disney and walt disney signed the contract himself and then later on years and years and years disney corporation tried to halt the ducks from using the imagery and the ducks were like no we we have actually the original contract signed by walt disney and then even better they showed a picture of all these guys, Len Casanova and Walt Disney, with around the duck, around a live duck, wearing the Letterman jersey yeah. <laughs> with the duck insignia on it. So, awesome. I mean, I think that's another kind of a cool concept that just separates us a little bit from the rest of the groups. You know, everybody's trying to kind of look at what makes Oregon unique. And, you know, I love our cartoonish mascot. I think as soon as they opened up the door and they allowed, you know, the duck to be on, I don't know if you want to call them puddles or the duck or whatever. I come from the duck perspective. But when, when, when you put the duck out there, you know, immediately he is just like the star of the show. Like any commercial he's doing you know, Rocket Mortgage or whatever else you see the duck on, you know, and uh, so it's a very unique time, you know, and for years, Oregon could never market it. That was the part of the night, the, the contract with Disney that we could use it, but we really couldn't make that money off of it. We couldn't really use it, use it. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great story. And then, uh, you know, I think there's other things like that, you know, with like Cal Bears, the Trojans, there's all sorts of weird stories on how these teams got labeled the team the, the, the name that they are because a lot of them are pretty strange mm -hmm, definitely <laughs> something something that was really strange to me that i saw kind of getting back to my general timeline um is so think about this right you would think i mean i until a few weeks ago when i researched this i thought to myself oh Oregon's never had an undefeated season you know we've never like 
didn't have an undefeated season. And I don't think this qualifies for most people, but in our second ever season, right, uh, we went undefeated. We went 4-0. and Where's our where's our ring, right? In 1895, we didn't lose a game. <laughs> We're going to claim a co-national championship like Washington. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> where's our 1906 championship? Yeah, another undefeated season, exactly. I mean, we had a tie in there that time, but shoot, that still counts, right? Come on. Um, a few things to point out. I, I want to get started on uh, the UW rivalry. So in 1900, we played our first game against UW, and we crushed them. It was 43-0. Um, now, <laughs> UW had a, has a very interesting history with us, um, and I think a lot of that gets lost sometimes um, just with the, you know, what's going on these days. But, I mean, there's genuine hate that's, like, genuinely justified. Um, and we'll, we'll get through that in a little bit. Um, but before, first, Reed, do you have anything else you want to, like, add, like, pre-1900s even? Um, not so much pre-1900s, but I, one thing I wanted to touch on was um, 1927. We have uh, Robert Robinson uh, joins Oregon as a quarterback, and he was – I don't know if this has ever been confirmed, but people say he's the first black quarterback ever, maybe, uh, in football. And so that seemed like a big thing that stood out to me. And that's kind of a, a theme that um, happens a couple times in terms of recruiting pitches later on with uh, with a modern shot, I think. Um, but it's it was kind of an interesting theme uh, or an interesting kind of thing that I picked up in my research, too. Yeah, Oregon was very ahead of the curve um, with integration. I mean, I think the latest, I think the last team to integrate was actually Alabama, and that didn't happen until like 1970. I mean, that's insane, right? Like, we had a black quarterback in the 20s, and like almost 50 years later, and you guys aren't even caught up with. The state of Oregon also, you know, passed women's right to vote in 1912, and the rest of the country did in 1919. So. A little progressive out here, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Nothing to be ashamed of. Um, let's see. I don't. Oh, I don't remember when the first Civil War game was. I don't have it noted down, but um, we definitely have to mention in 1910. Uh, <laughs> the Ducks, so the Ducks win in Corvallis, right? There was a riot after the game, <laughs> and like that lasted all the way to the train station, apparently. Um, and so in 1911, the game wasn't played. And this is the only year that that rivalry has not been played. Um, obviously, it's not the civil, technically the Civil War anymore. But I mean, that, that's kind of nuts. Um, another thing from that 1910 season, uh, U of O had its biggest win of all time. Uh, our largest margin of victory was 115 to zero. We beat Puget Sound. I just thought that was cool. Because like, not even Chip's offense could do that. <laughs> Again, like you said, it was just a different game back then. I mean, it really doesn't even – if you look at old footage and stuff, which doesn't – like, it doesn't even resemble football. No, no. And you, you talk about the, the, the rivalry between Washington and, Cal, and uh, the Bevos. You know, it's always kind of been there that, you know, for, call it what you want, but the, the, these schools represent different communities. They represent different – parts of society basically and you know my grandmother would never call it osu she only called it oac 
Mm-hmm. You know, she graduated in the 40s when it was OAC, and she literally wouldn't give them the respect of calling them OSU. It was still OAC until she died, you know, in 2000 or whatever. So, um, you know, Washington and Oregon is a little different because they're both very similar schools, you know, similar type of, you know, law and business school where the other school in the state is the ag school. And so I've always kind of thought of it from my perspective that Oregon has always kind of looked up to Washington, call it what you want, maybe through a jealous mindset, but we've always kind of looked up to Washington as, oh, they're the, you know, the downtown Seattle, Seattle's twice as big as Portland. They're right on the lake. They've got the beautiful setting for college football. And they really do. I mean, hate Washington as much as you want. I, I tend to think it is the, the greatest setting in college football, especially if you come in on the boat uh, like we did the last time up there. It was un, unreal. So uh, I'll give them kudos for that. But, yeah, Washington, uh, you know, the the history there, you know, it's both of those schools, Washington and Oregon State, a bunch of times they held it in Portland. Throughout the 1930s and 40s, there were tons of times where they held it at Multnomah Stadium in Portland. And they did it because they didn't want to deal with the issues up there in Seattle. They didn't want to deal with it in Eugene, and especially with Oregon State and Oregon. I mean, there was some crazy times there where they were not holding the game because of fear of, like you said, riots or whatever. I mean, you're talking about stuff like hazing stuff where they would go take their you know, a homecoming queen for hostage and they would take our homecoming or the, the class president as hostage and stuff. I mean, that's crazy stuff. That'd, that'd be like an Amber alert today. You know, it's just, it's, it's wild to think about some of the stuff that was going on back in the day. So I tend to think that that Oregon, uh, Oregon state rivalry has become much more tamer now than it ever was back then. Um, and Oregon, Washington is a very unique one because rarely have both schools been good at the same time. In the hundred years that Oregon and Oregon, or Washington have played each other, I think they've only played each other maybe five or six times where they've been both good. So it's kind of this weird back and forth where we beat them when they're bad, they beat us when we're bad. Both schools think that they're better, whatever. And the the internet is wild. I mean, that, that, that Husky Twitter is something to behold, man. <laughs> Definitely, I, I, definitely. I think it um, kind of feeds into it, like you said, where you know, when when one team's bad, they kind of forget to like watch college football, and then they don't really pay attention to the accomplishments of the other school, and then it kind of flips back the other way. Yeah, I mean, my my son's a freshman in high school. During his lifetime, he saw Washington lose every single game in the year. I mean, what? Like they had, they, and, and then the fact that the Apple Cup was two teams that had both lost every game. I mean, that, that's unreal. Yeah. I mean, that was, it wasn't that bad at Oregon. We had the, the, the toilet bowl. At least we won some games. Yeah. No, that is one thing I pointed out was we never lost, we never lost every game, every, like in a season, which we can always hold that over them. Another yeah. thing we can hold over them, this is a great segue. Um, let's talk about the 1916 season, right? As you mentioned, we're, we're doing pretty well. We got Hugo Bezdek as our coach. Um, and our only blemish on the entire schedule that season was a 0-0 tie with Washington. But there's a little more fuel behind this, right? Washington's coach, I think his name is Dobie. Um, this guy was like Jim Harbaugh on steroids. Like, <laughs> he was so hard. I'm trying not to swear here. Um, he was so hard, and this dude just refused to lose so much that, I mean, 
he never, it was something like he never lost a game in his first like nine years as head coach, mostly because they would beat up on like these tiny schools just so that they could win every game. Um, so big bad Washington comes down to little old Eugene for this 1916 game. There's a massive, massive fight about um, Dobie tries to like accuse one of Oregon's players of like being ineligible and stuff. I puts ineligible story. players on his team just so that he can remove them and seem like the good guy. Um, what else was there? He barely, he didn't even want to play the game because he wouldn't have the refs in his pocket like he usually did. Um, so he gets down to Kincaid Field, and after all that, it's a pouring rainstorm, and they're playing on sawdust like they apparently used to do all the time. Like. <laughs> there's a reason we have turf in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and it was a zero, zero tie after all that is it <laughs> a scoreless tie. Um, but it's interesting because later in that season, right, because of that, Washington and Oregon are like even records at the end of the year. By now we have a Pacific coast conference. And by now we do have some semblance of a Rose bowl. It's not called the Rose bowl. Um, and I don't think the Rose Bowl Stadium was even built yet. But, um, you know, you still want to go to the East-West game or whatever against Penn this year. Um, Oregon ultimately was given the invitation, among other things, because it was cheaper to get a train ticket from Eugene than from Seattle. Um, I think that kind of stuff is great. It's like, like it, it seems super crazy and like stupid but at the same time i could totally see something like that happening i mean just like in this era still i mean it's it's kind of a similar theme of like there's no central like authority in college football so we kind of just make it up as we go and it works yeah, out. Well, and i think you could almost say this we're doing the same thing now i mean look at the bcs look at this four-team playoff this arbitrary you know, at the beginning of the year, all these schools are ranked, and then, then this the number five beat the number six, and the number five and number six are both out of the top 25 by the end of the year. Like, what does this even mean? Like, looking at it from a different perspective, it's, it's kind of unique you, you said that, uh, because, yeah, I mean, looking at this from a different era is kind of like looking at it from a different perspective. Like, <laughs> we'd be in Pasadena for the Rose Bowl, and you have all these international people down there, right? And they'd be down there for a parade, you know, and we're down there for the game. Mm-hmm. And we and, and they'd say, is this championship? They're all from, you know, Europe or Asia. Or, is this championship? And they say, well, it's not really a championship. It's more of, it's a bowl game. Okay, so, they, and they're just, they're confused. So they're just like, I don't know. I don't know what this is. And uh, it's, it's just funny how that works because, you know, it's like, you know, from our perspective, we're trying to get to the Rose Bowl. But even the Rose Bowl is not really a championship. It's just another game at the end of the year where you get to go to the Pasadena and play it. It's just funny that people from looking from the outside, so they're like, so you drove down here? No, we, we flew down here. Oh, you flew down here. But this is not championship. Okay, okay. So uh, and I'm trying to convince some guy from Italy that this game matters. I'm like, no, we're playing Wisconsin. This really is important. And, you know, so, again, I think looking at college football through the lens of, you know, the players playing, it's always great. The family supporting it, it's always great. The alumni base is there to support it. But outside of that, you start getting into the fringe element of, like, so why are you liking college football? I mean, what is the deal here, you know? I mean, there's a lot of people who are on the fringe there 
who, uh, you know, are liking it for a wide variety of reasons. A lot of those people have no idea it even played this long or even that the game was different like you're talking about. Um, yeah, so, you know, times were different. You know, my aunt, when I was a kid growing up, my aunt was a heavy duck, rest in peace. And, uh, uh, and she had the 1920 Rose Bowl poster in her house. Like, she had that frame, the one we lost to Harvard. And, uh, and I always remember that. It's like 1920, you know. And now, that's 100 years from now. You know, when we won that Rose Bowl, uh, here, I got the, the, the thing right here. After 95 years, we won the thing, you know, Darren Thomas and those guys. You know, it's, it's amazing to think about the history that's involved here. So, no, it's good times. Uh, uh, college football has definitely expanded, and, and, and Oregon's been a part of it. I think Oregon State, Oregon, Washington, you know, Cal, we've all kind of are in that same kind of boat where, you know, immediately from, from pretty much from the jump, we started looking up at the LA schools as the ones who were running the ship. <laughs> yeah, really. And I mean, a lot of the things you were talking about in terms of like, why, why do people like college football? That totally applies to back then even more so because like you had people literally dying on the field, like during these games, like these people would just die and you just keep playing football. Like what? Um, I think I read a headline where it was like, only like uh physician says physicians say like only 15 like players died this year from football it's like what do you mean only <laughs> but it makes sense when i mean you have like literally 11 players on the entire team <laughs> and so everybody's playing offense defense it's not wide open at all i mean it's just people pushing each other um but i mean by the way we did win that rose bowl against penn who was very heavily favored um and we beat them 14-0 shut out so that's sure. nice. Um, and so on that team, right, Shy Huntington is the best player. Um, and then he takes over as coach the next season because Hugo Bezdek, our coach from then, left to go be in a, a manager of the general uh, Pittsburgh Pirates. Whatever, <laughs> you know. Um, he's good enough to win a Rose Bowl. I hope he's good enough to win a pennant maybe. <laughs> um, so I mean, move into the Huntington sleep. era. Hayward Field is constructed. Um, in that first season, it's constructed. Uh, like you like you said, we went to the Rose Bowl that season, 1919 season. Uh, we lose to Harvard 7-6. to six, And from what I've read, uh, we lost on a missed field goal, which is pretty brutal. And that's a theme that will come up in some of our later episodes of the history. So. <laughs> We've all seen that enough, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and so... I want to credit, first of all, I want to credit most of the, the articles and stuff I found personally uh, to, first of all, the Fish Duck community. Uh, it's a blog site, I believe. Um, and especially user Ben's Duck um, just got so, so much history in here. Like, I can't thank whoever that is enough um, for this archive. Because if not, like we, you know, we literally wouldn't know some of this stuff. Um, Ben's Duck is great. Also, Kurt Letke. Go, go check out Kurt. I'll, I'll send the message over there. Kurt was an early fish duck guy as well. Uh, but yeah, no, there, there's, there's some guys out there. Kurt is actually, his YouTube is responsible for unbelievable amounts of Oregon footage. He had all sorts of stuff from the eighties, nineties that he had posted up, you know, Rich Brooks show and everything. I mean, oh my gosh. So yeah, no, there's, there's some historians out there. And again, I, I tend to think actually some of those historians, you know, came out of the woodworks even more when the Oregon success really started to take over and you had a lot of people call it what you want, call it, call it jumping on the bandwagon or whatever. But a lot of people who were new to the program, who were new, who had real high expectations and you had all these old timers saying, hey, 
pump the brakes, boys. We've been bad for a long time. And that was kind of news to, I think, a lot of the younger generation. That's kind of what we're trying to do a little bit, too. Exactly. Right. Um, so it's another interesting thing is, so I talked about those two early Rose Bowls, right? In the teen years, uh, those were back-to-back Rose Bowls because there wasn't any games in between. Why not? A little something called World War One was happening. Um, and that's, that's, you know, gotta, gotta go off to war. I guess you can't play football. <laughs> like, that, another thing that just seems inconceivable, um, in today's age, but it's really like, that's just what happened back then. Well, even, um, even another caveat there is the beeves, the only bros bowl day in, they didn't even get to play in Pasadena. They had to go back to Durham, North Carolina. Yeah, to play. Yeah, that's right. They had to play yeah. Duke at home. They had to go to, they had to go on a road game. Yeah. For fear that the Japanese during World War II. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was right after Pearl Harbor. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, speaking of like, we, we went over like the, the teen years and stuff there's really not much to pull between that and the next world war. Like this is kind of where um, I, I think Ben's duck is the one who coined this term, the suffering with a capital S begins. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, the, those teams were, were pretty good back then. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. It, it got bad and it didn't get good for a long, long, long time. Like, I mean, we're talking about like, yeah if we have a disappointing season or whatever like we're talking about like shy huntington between the shy huntington era and 1948 no bowl appearances now that's not to say there weren't some okay teams maybe um bowl standards were a lot higher back then the, th- the threshold was like like for for a lot of times and we'll get to this like you were only like only one team from each conference would go to a rose bowl uh, or any bowl for that matter. Um, so, I mean, is, is there anything you guys want to pull out in this kind of this, this terrible space between 1916 and 1948? Well, the I mean, same thing goes, the same thing goes in basketball. I mean, you know, for years, UCLA was the only team from the pack eight going to the you know, NCAA tournament. The NIT tournament was the next best thing. And ducks actually fared pretty well in the NIT but yeah going back to what you said about bowl games I mean there would have definitely been some bowl games as opposed to these you know requirements now you got to win six games there's every single sarsaparilla bowl every other bowl you'd want to have and you know back then you just didn't have that and it was building 1920s you know just not to go on a U.S. history rant but the 1920s showed the expansion of all the professional sports that's when you have everything boom you know you have Babe Ruth you have Jack Dempsey you've got all the major major uh uh, sports completely explode uh and uh, motion pictures start you have the modern automobile you have all the 1920s really starts to get things into a swing and then you know with the the great depression great depression just put a real kind of kibosh on the whole thing for a while took resources out of the gate nobody was looking at disposable income nobody was going and traveling much or doing anything you know our country was just in, in in peril for years and then you come out of great depression you get the war the, the worst war humans have ever seen, uh, the most destruction, the most biggest call-up, the most money's ever spent. I mean, you, this all was one after the other after the other. And so, you know, college football, college sports across the board was not really a priority in our culture. Uh, post-war is when it really kind of took off across the board. Yeah, and I mean, like, we saw Oregon trying to make some – well, we didn't see it, but um, 
historically Oregon tried to make some moves in this period um, in like the thirties where they try to get some East coast coaches over here. Uh, never really worked out. Um, 1933 though is, is a season, I guess we could point out. Um, uh, team went nine and one, which is like really, really good back then. Uh, their only loss was the USC who, again, like you said, the LA schools pretty much ran everything for a long time. Um, and then no bowl game because right. you're only you're only co-champions. Uh, I don't remember who went over us, but oh well, <laughs> right, right. too bad. So sad. And again, I think that just kind of you know follows or mirrors what's going on in the society of the you know the United States at that time. You know, there's just kind of a dip a little bit. Uh, we'll call it a 20 year maybe hiatus from really a lot of focus on that sort of stuff. And even though there was still a focus on it, I mean. You know, it just it's not even close to what it is now. The the the, the media didn't have the even. I mean, there were there, there were sports writers who were covering stuff like this, but you know, people on the East Coast didn't know what was happening on the West Coast when it came to these scores. They'd be in the newspaper, they'd post the scores, maybe a little write up about it, but unless something like crazy was happening, you know, it would not have been a big story outside of just Oregon. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I mean, yeah, we thought East Coast bias is. <laughs> bad in modern day <laughs> really bad back then um so let's get to this 48 season because this is a really pivotal well kind of pivotal season it's a really important season um lost to michigan early in the season uh who was very good that year i think they might end up ended up being national champions um and this is this is the era where the whole michigan ohio state thing just starts to really dominate this is when mm-hmm. they're like the best in the country and that yeah. rivalry becomes solidified as one of the most important rivalries, right? Yeah. And, I mean, you move through the season, picking up wins here and there, you know, beat Idaho. Oh, you beat USC. That was a big win in Portland, um, Washington State, St. Mary's. You get past Washington and UCLA, and then you're like, okay, beat the Beavers in Corvallis 10-0. That's a 9-1 season right there. So, at this point – this is this is a big like sharpie highlight circle in the UW Oregon rivalry, right? Yeah. Because not only were we top of the conference, but we had to share it, and that meant that everyone else in the conference got to vote on who's going to represent us in in the only bowl game you know, in, in the Rose Bowl. Um, and so, what happened was, for, first of all, um, back then. I think Idaho was still in the conference and so was Montana. Um, And this is important because all the California schools, Oh, it was was Oregon versus Cal, right? Like they didn't play, but they had to, that was, that was who they were just picking over. All the California schools are going to side with Cal. It was expected that all the Northwest teams side with Oregon as for their vote. Washington not only doesn't vote for Oregon, but they convince Montana to vote against us as well. Um, and so we missed out on the Rose Bowl that year. Cool. Yeah, Thanks, was, Washington. You guys are yeah. really, really great guys, you know? <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, that was classic. And that's Norm Van Brocklin mm-hmm. era. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Who, obviously who NFL Hall of Famer eventually. Legend. Legend. Looked at as probably the best Oregon quarterback of all time for most of time until Dan Fouts, until... Obviously, maybe Joey at a certain point, people might have thought that, or Akili Smith, or add add whoever you want, Dennis Dixon, whoever else you want. And then, of course, Marcus. Yeah. 
But yeah, I mean, by his standards, Brocklin might be like, like relative to his time. I mean, you could argue he's like the best out of those guys, but I mean, that's another argument for another time. Um, So Cal gets to go to the Rose Bowl. You know, we're feeling bad, all this, but we do get one consolation. Uh, It's not a super great consolation, but we do get to play another game. Um, (laughs) Instead of going to the Rose Bowl, uh, we get to go play SMU in the Cotton Bowl. Um, and by the way, speaking of legends, I mean, Doak Walker was on that SMU team. And there's a reason there's an award named after him. For the best he won the award, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> His name's on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so we basically have to play SMU in their own backyard in the Cotton Bowl. Um, we lose to them, although we do put up a fight, which is more than what a lot of people expected. Um you know, there, there goes a year. It'll be another 10 years before we go to the bowl game. <laughs> Cause again, that's just how stuff worked back then. Like it's, it, it's really hard to wrap your mind around, but I mean, I mean, think about this, you turn around, you have a season where you should have gone or at least had a claim to go to the Rose bowl. Two years later is arguably the worst season in the history of Oregon football. Um, and that's that's saying quite a bit because again, every every part that we're skipping over here is just filled with losing and nothing else. Just losing and pain and terribleness. Um, we beat Montana. And I don't even I don't even think we've gotten to the worst part yet. And this is this yeah. is losing, but it's you know we we're you know they're still picking up some wins here and there. The seventies it got real bad. Yeah, like um, real bad. I mentioned that. 58 was the next time we would go to a bowl game. Um, we went to the Rose Bowl that year, had a great season, uh, lost to Ohio State, and uh, we lost by three points. It was 10 to 7, and we lost because of a missed field goal. <laughs> and they carried they carried Casanova off the field in a losing effort. Yep, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, uh, that's Uncle Phil's uh, junior year. Phil's down there for that game. Oh, that's a – ooh. That's a good one. That's a he good talks one. about that in Shoe Dog a little bit. That's really we, interesting. We got yeah. both like that. Um, because, again, like, so this is our third Rose Bowl we've ever been to, right? And now the two we've lost have come down to missed field goals. <laughs> not come down to that, but, like, a, a field goal could have won it. Um, and, again, it's, it's 10-7. These games aren't – like, a field goal means a lot more then than it did now. Also, something I forgot about the Harvard game uh, with that loss to Harvard – it's disputed whether or not it was actually a missed field goal. Um, some people say it went in. Some people like it was one of those where like the goal <laughs> no post not very high. Like you just kind of guess. Right. No instant replay. The <laughs> one ref looked over at the other ref and was like, are "We, are we doing it? No, yeah, okay." <laughs> yeah, and in, in looking through some of this stuff, like you have stuff where like, oh, Oregon's playing UW in Seattle, and like it's a tie game in the fourth quarter and, you know, you got a Ducks player streaking towards the end zone and like the students come on the field and tackle him and it ends in a zero, zero tie. It's like, that's it. That's all we're doing. You're serious about this. Like, I mean, people joke about refs, like, Oh, you know, Oh, refs got to get out of there or else they're going to get attacked. Like that kind of stuff would literally happen. Right. In these games. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, you can speak on Casanova too, because he becomes a major, major part. The basically the face of Oregon athletics for years to come. Len Casanova. Yeah, there's a reason we got the Casanova Center. 
big time. He was he was a legend. Became a major, major, major player. Yeah, I was. I've been reading uh, Brian Libby's book on the history of Oregon football, and he said, uh, I think there's a quote in there that says, like, what Bear Bryant was to Alabama, uh, Len Casanova was to Oregon. And kind of going back to that 48 season, it seems like that kind of set up a lot of the momentum that then Castanova took over. And um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy getting back, getting him, his, him getting us back to that Rose Bowl um, in that 57 season. I also noticed on there, that was, I think the first time Oregon beat all four California schools in one year wow and that's like that you know is probably a big deal at the time given kind of how much those schools dominated the conference athletically for a while absolutely that's great that's awesome um, yeah and those, like we're saying those bowls then those were huge deals mm-hmm. you know getting to a bowl then was a major deal so they went to the liberty bowl they went to the sun bowl you know after that and they i mean that there that was those those are huge huge events you know it's not just like going to the you know whatever you kind of call it, the, the, the auto zone bowl or whatever the <laughs> new, you know what I mean? The weed whacker bowl. <laughs> yeah. Pull on weed eater. Now we, we don't, don't get us oh, wrong. No, we'll, we, get to, we, we'll get to the independence. Yeah. No, no, don't be hurt. Don't be, don't be hating on the pull on weed eater now. <laughs> um, so like you said, Reed, I mean, Casanova really built this thing up. Like after that 48 season, everybody kind of graduates. Um, and then the Ducks are kind of stuck with a terrible team. Uh, but as soon as 1954, they were back to a winning record. Uh, Wikipedia tells me the Ducks played in the first ever nationally televised football game and won it uh, in 1953. We beat Nebraska in Portland. So that's cool. Um, and again, in, in 1957, uh, us and Oregon State, I think it was Oregon State by then, um, we were tied for the conference title, but there was a no repeat rule that the conference had. Um, so we couldn't go. Uh, yeah. Or no, though they couldn't go. That's why we went. Sorry. And yeah, I think- Casanova also said of that team, uh, there's a quote he said that it wasn't a great team, but it was a determined one. I think that's pretty interesting. Interesting. Like I, that kind of was a lot of what it was at that time, like the determination of it. Um, and kind of just like getting people to focus on a goal and, and follow through with it because it's kind of backyard football in some ways that's being played still. Yeah. And in a lot of ways too, like that era kind of brings up a theme that we see a lot throughout the history of Oregon football of just like people underestimating us. Like, I mean, in that Rose bowl game against Ohio state, yeah, we lost by three points, but we were supposed to lose by three touchdowns. Right. And like, like you said, I mean, carrying Cass off the field after that game, like it seems mediocre, but I mean, like it's, it's not for nothing. I mean, these, we would fight when we got into big games. Um, and another thing I, I think to say about Casanova is that he, he's one of these guys that has the football tree, you know, his assistant coaches, he's had a lot of success. Obviously John Robinson, one of those guys, George Seifert, a, a, a NFL quarterback, John McKay, uh, the, the, these these guys had tremendous amount of success NFL college football across the board and and uh, so there was always kind of a, a little bit of that that lingered for a long time with Casanova's kind of uh, I don't know the era of Casanova lasted a lot longer than maybe average would just be by that coaching tree uh, of doing so well so 
Yeah, exactly. Um, something I want to mention, uh, I want to talk about the conference real quick because up until now, I mean, now as in like our timeline that we're on right now, um, the, the Pacific Coast Conference, right? Because conferences kind of come into play in like the teen, 19 teen years. Um, and the Pacific Coast Conference, uh, it slowly adopts more members. I mean, the, the four original members, right? The Pacific Coast Conference are Cal, UW, Oregon, and Oregon State, right? Well, OAC back then. Um, fast forward to the 50s. By now, you've got uh, those four plus Wazoo is in it. Stanford uh, joined pretty, pretty early on. USC, Idaho was in it. Um, and UCLA, too had joined by then and Mon uh, no Montana left, but um, it's at this point in 19, was it 59, I think, um, UW, Cal, Stanford, and USC kind of on, I didn't do a ton of research into this, but sort of on an like elitist basis of like sort of wanting to, be, you know, separate themselves, quite literally separated themselves um, and created their own conference, the AAWU. Um, so Oregon was independent for a while, actually. Um, we were independent for a few years there. Then we picked back up in the conference along with Oregon State. Um, and then from then on, it was pretty much like, it's all familiar faces from there, right? Um, it's back to, uh, you know, all the four California schools and the Washington schools, the Oregon schools. The Arizona schools get added um, in, what is that, 1970? Yeah, 70s, late yeah. 70s. Yeah, late 70s. And that's up and yeah, that's when you really get the Pac-10. Um, but there's this weird gap where we're actually independent. Um, not a ton changed. I mean, you still just play schools geographically close to you and whatnot. But uh, I just thought that was an interesting tidbit. Um, uh, in 1964, so right after we rejoined the conference, the Ducks come agonizingly close to winning it. Uh, but we lost to the Beavers in the last game or last game of the year. Um, and then we would continue to lose for them for eight more years. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> the, the, which is another theme we see throughout this rivalry is that like the Ducks or Beavers like for so, were so bad sometimes that it was like actually the only game they cared about. And they would like, I mean, teams would win for decades in a row. Like, in this, you know, in this particular decade, it was OSU winning for a while. And then you have in like the, what is it? 80s, um, 80s and 90s, the Ducks are basically winning it um, every season. So, I mean, building up to this, as we kind of get towards the modern era, I mean, you start to hear names that are more familiar, right? You got your Bobby Moore, Madrashad, same person. Um, you got your Dan Fouts was there in, uh, what was it? Late sixties, I think. Yeah, early um, 70s. Okay. Yeah. Late sixties, early seventies. Um, he had, there was, um, an insane, like 30 point comeback or something against UCLA in there in 1970. There's some really cool, if you YouTube it, there's some really cool footage of that, um, that I found. Uh, so as we're building up this program, right. I want to I introduce everybody to the Rich Brooks era because um, many Oregon fans only know Rich Brooks as, oh, yeah, he's, he's the guy who got us to the Rose Bowl, right? Not so, as Lee Corso says, not so fast, my friend. There was quite a bit of suffering that happened <laughs> under Rich Brooks's watch. Um, and again, since that, uh, since that 
Rose Bowl loss in the 57 season. There were only two more bowl appearances. And uh, like we, we played in the Sun Bowl in 63. And uh, <laughs> we didn't play in another bowl game until 89. <laughs> um, and that's, again, Rich Brooks was hired in 1977. Um, he was brought in as like, because at that point, like not only was Oregon football bad, but it was like a complete joke to a lot of people. Like you're, you're getting people like nobody's showing up to games. I mean, we're talking about like attendance is so low that they didn't even keep track in a lot of this stuff. Um, we had Autzen by then, but I mean, it was mostly just a parking lot. I mean, Ryan, I'm sure you can give us some insight. I'd love to hear some insight about some of what old Autzen was like uh, with the Honey Bucket Brigade and so forth. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, I think you got to get it, 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 you, you skip over a couple of Dick Enright and Don Reed. And I think there's that there's a time in the 70s. You know, my parents were there in the early 70s. Uh, my my aunt's roommate was Dan Bout's wife. Uh, so I would, you know, have, had met Dan a couple different times in, 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 in passing in an airport or whatever, where, you know, this is a guy who's an NFL Hall of Famer, a guy who's, you know, looked at as being one of the best chargers of all time. Uh, and he would be in an airport. And he'd come across the airport and be like, hey, Molly, to come talk to my, my aunt. And I'm like, this is the I'm like, is this really happening? You know, like Dan Fouts, dude, the guy was amazing. So, um, no, I think there was success at Oregon. There's just it was just few and far between. And. It was just got it into a position, you know, it was really bad. You know, my dad talks about how when he was there, they didn't even have the marching band. They had an electric band. They had guys with, like, the guitars and stuff. Like, they didn't even have the marching band playing at the game. So it got into a weird position in the 70s. You know, Autzen is a weird uh, uh, deal as well because, you know, I think, you know, they were pretty used to playing at Hayward. And then when Autzen came in, it was it was so revolutionary, such a different atmosphere there. And, um a little bit farther removed from campus, uh, and, and it was just it, it kind of a sterile environment. I don't know if you guys felt the same kind of a thing with, you know, moving from Matt Court into the Matt Knight Arena, where, you know, Matt Court was like our home. Matt Court, we like knew exactly every nook and cranny, every little creek in the floor or whatever. He went into this brand new building of like, it looked like the mini Rose Garden, and we're like, what is going on here? This is not really us. This isn't really who, who we're about, and... You know, I, I tend to think even with Matt Knight, it really didn't get fully christened until Sabrina's crew came through it. And I think the, the ladies really made it their uh, place more than anything else. So, I don't know. It, I think the early stages of, of Oregon football, and Autzen at least, was a little dicey. You know, uh, first year they play on grass and it's just a mud field. They put in the turf. Turf was not great. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, the first AstroTurf comes from Astrodome. That's what they call it, the AstroTurf. And you know, uh, just it, it it it's it's very young in its technology, and it's uh, so it's not a great environment to play on. Um, didn't have a lot of success. Didn't have a lot of support. You know, Oregon during the 1970s, Eugene in the 1970s was you know pretty bohemian, and uh, it wasn't really that football was the number one driving force. Basketball was great. Kamikaze Kids were really popping it, and it was really a, a, a huge ticket to get to was Matt Court. But Autzen was just an absolute stale environment. And, you know, through the 1980s, I think it's actually kind of, you know, the Ducks kind of used that to their advantage. You know, Duck fans would absolutely get blasted drunk and and screaming and yelling. And, you know, those were the days where they would, you know, allow for beers in the stadium. Uh, and, and people would go there to, to drink. 
basically, and have a, have, a, have a day where just get rowdy or whatever, and it started to kind of get louder and louder. The old Otzen, the parking lot at old Otzen was great. You know, we never bought tickets. My 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 aunt had season tickets from uh, when she graduated high, uh, graduated college, nineteen seventy three, all the way till the day she died. And um, but my dad and my mom, they never had season tickets. We would just drive to the game from Portland, day of the game. Didn't have tickets, just walk up to the box office, buy tickets. We used to always sit kind of in the corner of the end zone, section seventeen, section sixteen, fifteen, right in there. Um, and, um, and, and just kind of, we could sit anywhere we wanted to. There was just gigantic amount of it. Kind of like you go to the uh, USC in the fourth quarter and all the people leave and there's just huge <laughs> amounts of, of, of seats available. You can sit anywhere you want. And, um, so, you know, old Watson was fun. Always, you know, games in the parking lot. It wasn't like you just were playing catch. There'd be actually full games. We guys blindman blocking wide receivers going out, huddling back in the thing, you know, little kids out there playing in the fields and, uh, on the parking lots or whatever. But I think the most proud thing as a, as, as a fan of the ducks from the time frame that I've been living, of course, I, I was born right at the rich Brooks era. So I've, that's kind of the era that I saw. And, and, you know, we got to see the whole thing get built, you know, uh, got to see everything. I mean, from, from literally a parking lot to what you see now with, you know, a top flight baseball facility, a top flight soccer facility, unbelievable practice facility for the football team, three different football fields in the, what was the parking lot. And I mean, I remember back in the day, you know, we used to be Elks club members. We'd be over at the Elks club swimming across the street and we'd be out there watching the guys practice basically over where the, uh, you know, uh, uh, tailgate area is across the way. Uh, there's still a, fo- uh, a, a, a field goal over there across the street in the, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, boys yeah. and girls lot there. The, 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 uh, there's a justice center there now, and there's all sorts of development there now across the street, across MLK from Watson. But back then there was just nothing. You know, the Ducks played across the street. You know, I love the Nick Aliotti story. Nick Aliotti said when he first got there, you know, his office was in the basement of Matt Court, and he had his, the only thing in his possession in that whole room was a nail. He had one nail on the wall where he could hang his coat. And he went from having a nail, just one nail, to having the office of the defensive coordinator in the HTC. Yeah. I mean, it's like, are we, I mean, we go from a nail to the HDC. It's like, are we serious here? Like, it's total, like, some of this old stuff is a like total amateur hour. I mean, I found an anecdote about uh, AD Bill Byrne, who was AD from 84 to 92. More on him in a second. Um, he's, like, figuring out plumbing in Austin Stadium because none of the toilets are flushing because there's some problem and like the plumbing like the pipes down there aren't even documented and they're just like literally tearing the stadium apart to try to fix this stuff I mean it's hilarious but so well, yeah I mean now, now they do a full thing where they have every toilet flushed at the same time you know in these new stadiums whatever they didn't do any of that in the 60s late 60s they built Austin Stadium in a dump I mean it's literally I mean they, they just they they, they they dug it out they poured in the sides they built this thing it was not state-of-the-art it was not state-of-the-art <laughs> so when rich brooks gets bought it gets brought in right it's it's sort of a change of tone for the program because up until then it's sort of like oh yeah you know it's football whatever um they brought brooks in with a purpose and that purpose was to like take him to the top and he got there eventually 
but it took almost 20 years. I mean, like the, he, he demand, first of all, I mean, he, the only reason he took the job was because of the recruiting budget we gave him. Um, and the fact that uh, we were able to get some of his like buddy assistants down there. Um, there were a lot, the early Ridge Brooks era is filled with uh, a lot of scandals actually. Um, the, some, some stuff with like where the only reason he could get good players was because his assistant, whose name escapes me, uh, who was coaching a JUCO in Southern Cal, well, he would just get all the JUCO transfers to come to Oregon. And like all the classes they were taking would be like, oh, like physical education or whatever. And they would be like taught in this dude's garage or whatever. And like come to find, you know, people come creeping around eventually and realize, oh, that's like not, you know, no, you can't take running. Like, no, you can't use football practice as your running elective. Like that's not how that works. <laughs> you have to you take actual classes. Um, so Nux got put on probation in 1980, um, and then again in 82 once the NCAA was there. Um, so that brings us. To, <laughs> do you have anything to add before we go toilet bowl? Well, I want to. I want to go back just a second because I think you know you talk about how we kind of worked through Enright and Reed in the 70s there. And I think as kind of a a fan growing up now, and you look back just through like the list of seasons and my question kind of always was, you know, why did Brooks even get the chance to Mm -hmm. stick around? You know, it, it takes us 12 seasons to get to the independence bowl and we're maybe a little better than we were during the seventies, but not that much better. Um, And there's, you know, like we're getting to the toilet bowl fiasco and all of that, you know, why was Rich Brooks even still the coach after all this time? Why did he kind of keep holding on to the job? What was kind of the hope there? Well, I just think the expectations were just so low. I mean, I just, you know, uh, there just wasn't a commitment to football. Uh, of course, Oregon's track town, you know, Oregon in the 1970s was really booming in track. Um, and, you know, basketball was fairly decent. You know, they were pretty much usually 500 or a little bit better. Uh, football was just terrible, and I don't know if they really had a vision of how they were going to even get better. Um, I thought it was just kind of a deal where they would just think, okay, we'll just take the second, third best players we can from all the other schools that don't want those kids or that can't play at the other schools like Washington. Because, you know, Washington in the 1970s really took off as well. And so, you know, with Washington being as good as they are, with USC being as good as they are, UCLA has always been a good program. Like we talked about, Stanford was good throughout the 1970s. And, you know, it just gets to a point where, you know, you, you look at uh, Rich Brooks and, you know, there was some time in there where it started to get a little bit better. You know, there was there was a couple, you know, games that he beat Washington maybe or they beat Oregon State. And again, at that point in time, I hate to say it, but if you beat the Bees at the end of the year, you looked at it as a pretty good year. And a, lot of, a lot of two and nine seasons where, hey, sure. you the Beavs, mission accomplished. Beat the Beavs, right. And, and, and Rich Brooks being a Beave, uh, uh, you know, put a little extra icing on the cake. You know, they would get fired up for it. But there's also a different era of football. I don't think Rich Brooks would have lasted two years in our modern era. The guy was an absolute screamer. The guy would grab football helmets and just rip the guy right in here and just be berating the guy, spinning all over the guy's face because that was the era he was in. Um, they were not good. So, yeah. Okay. 
I've heard legends. <laughs> Allergy. Time. No, I I'm on the same page as you usually. But yeah, no, I I just think that there's just super low expectations. They didn't really have a vision. They weren't really competitive, um, and they were just doing their best. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, let, let me read off the records of <laughs> uh, seasons. All right, seventy seventy comes in two and nine. Next year, two and nine. Next year, hey, six and five. Oh, hey, look, we got to you know another six win season. Uh, right after that, back-to-back six-win seasons. Well, yeah, that's when all the scandals were happening. Um, so that, you know, back to two and nine in 1981, uh, another two-win season in 1982. And then 1983, I mean, shoot, at least we've beaten the Beavers like eight straight years up to this point. But, boy, I've only heard legends of the toilet bowl. Can you give us right. some, some insight? Sure, sure. And I also think there was some players in there too, like, you know, Reggie Ogburn, my dad's favorite quarterback of all time probably at Oregon and um you know a guy who 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 my dad always says he would just be amazing now kind of a thing you know so there were some players there um Lou Barnes great wide receiver there were some guys guys who went to the NFL of course Gary Zimmerman we know uh, uh NFL Hall of Famer as well but toilet bowl <laughs> toilet bowl you know it's funny. I, I have probably about, you know, I went through a whole list of all these different bowl game or uh, civil war games that I'd gone to. I, I only, I think I'm 43. I think I've only missed five. Wow. In my whole life. Uh, there were some times where we, maybe I didn't go for whatever reason, but I, I really never missed a game in Eugene and I would miss some games in Corvallis maybe when I was young or whatever, but got to go to the toilet bowl. You know, the, the year before the toilet bowl, let's talk about this one for example. We talked about losing the Ohio State game last year. We hosted Notre Dame. Okay, we hosted Notre Dame and we tied them. We came back and we tied them. That's a and that game. was unbelievable. That was an unbelievable game. And I was at that game. This game was was crazy. The the and and so there was like some hope. Um, the 1983 though was brutal. That game alone, one of the coldest games, one of the wettest games, one of the windiest games uh, I've ever been a part of, ever seen. Um, obviously I've seen wetter, uh, like that Cal game with the monsoon or whatever. Nothing, nothing, nothing will ever rival that one. But, um, it was just a brutal game. It was just a comedy of errors. Team could, could not get into the score uh, red zone, even much less score, missed field goals, uh, fumble. I think there was probably eight or not, 10 fumbles on each. Uh, I think Oregon had maybe seven fumbles just on their side alone. Uh, just a horrible game. Just an absolute horrible game. And uh, uh, kind of a, a metaphor for how bad both programs were. And and it, was, it became a joke um, after that. Now, the, the the toilet ball. The other game I think was one of the worst games I ever saw. I think it was nineteen ninety. It was at, uh, up at Corvallis, six to three. The Ooh. Ducks won at the very end with a field goal. Uh, it was a three three tie the whole game, and that was another version of the toilet bowl. It was just an absolute torrential downpour, fumbles, horrible, horrible football. Like the kind of football you would see between kids who didn't know how to play at a public park in the rain. Like it was just god awful, and like in going through this history lesson, like we've seen a lot of zero zero ties along the way. I don't really think this happened much in 1983. By then, I mean, can you give us some perspective as to like it was the last? Yes, yeah, the last yeah, it was the one, last one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was it was yeah. I mean, at that time again, like we we're talking about, it's still we're, 
you know, Colin Cowherd uh, came in. I, I uh, kind of had befriended him for a couple of years. I worked at a grocery store, and he had an hour to kill between his two radio. He had his radio station and a, mm-hmm. when he was in Portland, when yeah. he was working at the radio station, the TV station, he would come in. I was at New Seasons in Selwood, uh, and he would come in. And we'd chat every single day. And the one wow. thing that – oh, yeah, Colin Cowherd's a great guy. <laughs> and – one thing we'd always talk about was this like, the thing that I think I actually think that he nailed the most, and he was the only guy saying at that time, was how college football is shifting from regional to national. This was at the time, right after 2000, 2001, 2004, whatever in there, where it was starting to become a little bit more national. The Ducks mattered to the East Coast at some point in time, during this time, for the first time ever, you know. Um, and that's where you start to see, the, you know, obviously with the BCS – uh, you see more tie-in there. Uh, obviously, where we're at right now, I, I mean, er- everything matters. So, but you know, I, I always appreciate Colin for that because you know, at that time, you know, he was not really he's he's a, he's a Washington guy. Uh, he grew up on the coast of Washington, so he's always been kind of uh, connected to the Washington program. Even though he went to Eastern, uh, he's been always kind of connected to the Huskies, or whatever. And he's kind of always looked at it through the lens of like, well, the Ducks are never going to be as good as the Huskies. You know, they're never going to win national championships. They're never going to be as good as the Huskies. And he still kind of has that mentality. I don't know if you ever see him on the national show. He doesn't give the Ducks that much credit, but uh, you know, he 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 came up that perspective of it's becoming more national. And when it became more national, it's very unique to see. The Ducks became more relevant. So when we were stuck in this regional time frame of all this, we couldn't really compete. We weren't as good as Washington. We will never be as good as USC. And so on the West Coast, we were just getting dominated. But as soon as it opened up a little bit and they could kind of get a little bit of a niche out there and start to kind of create their own lane a little bit, that's when the rest of the country started paying attention a little bit. Guys like Kirk Herbstreet, they love the Ducks. Her, you know, the guy, they, they, they always hype up going to Eugene, whereas there was a whole era before that who didn't even know how to pronounce Oregon, right? They call it Oregon, you know? So, Some still don't, <laughs> unfortunately. They still don't, right. Um, okay, Ryan, what can you tell me about the legend of the Autzen Dome? Because I mentioned Bill Byrne a little bit earlier. He was the AD, uh, became AD in 1984, and he, this man really, really, really wanted to put a dome on Autzen Stadium. Said it would help with recruiting, said it would help with attendance, because, I mean, people were, you know, even though it never rains at Autzen Stadium, I mean, it would still keep people from going to games sometimes. And they even, this man even wanted to do the the carrier dome thing, where you you section off, like, you put, you play basketball in there and just section off part of the field for it. What the hell is that about? Well, I think Bill's real visionary the guy he was willing to kind of step outside of his comfort zone and you know to be honest that he might have outgrown oregon with that mindset you know going on to other bigger and better things quote unquote but you know the the idea of oregon you know you only play seven games out here so yeah yeah (laughs) putting that much money into these into these buildings you're only using seven days out of the year is a little ridiculous maybe eight with a spring game or a concert here and there or whatever but you know, they were kind of thinking about, well, what are they going to do uh, next? You know, what are they going to do? And 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 they really kind of thought that the Autzen Dome might separate Autzen from everything else on the West Coast and, and maybe create some sort of an event center that you could house, you know, bigger events, maybe like a, an Olympic, you know, they already have the Olympic trials, but some sort of other, I don't know, whatever the case may be. They had some big ideas on that thing. 
I think it's bigger than football is basically what I'm saying. Uh, I mean, from what I understand, it was close to actually happening. I mean, there were a couple of times where like ultimately the budget budgeting didn't work out and, you know, his, had to, you know, uh, budge some numbers a little bit to even get the idea off the ground. But I mean, it was a realistic possibility that we would have that. Well, and you got to understand also at that time, you know, the, the domes were new uh, and, and it was, they were thinking this was going to be it. This is what we, this is how you were going to build arenas from this point forward. You know, after the uh, uh, Astrodome, the Kingdome out here, uh, Tacoma Dome, they were like, hey, man, we're going to just build domes. That's what we're going to do. And especially out here uh, in, in, in the Northwest, all the rain we get. But no, I, I, I tend to think <laughs> the dome, the dome is kind of like the 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 the, the duck, the the mallard, yeah, super yeah. mallard, or, yeah, yeah, whatever they're going to call that guy. You know, it was, I, I think it was an idea of saying, hey, let's, let's try to do something new and different and let's think outside the box. And I, I don't know if that's really comfortable, especially when people start signing checks for it. At that point in time, especially, you had no indoor practice facility. You had another sort of stuff. So they were trying to think of that as well. They were trying to kill kind of two birds with one stone. What if we domed the building, then you could use it like you're talking about, do it where you don't have to use Matt Court anymore. Matt Court was old in the in the 50s. <laughs> you yeah. know, you know, Matt Court, they added they added the whole second story to Matt Court in the 50s. I don't know if you guys realize that, but the first the, the first couple, you know, decades was just the lower bowl. They didn't even have the upstairs. So they were kind of running out of room at Matt Court. They were kind of thinking, okay, what are we going to do here? Obviously, they could have done something with track in there as well. They could have, it could have been a multi-purpose kind of facility. And I think it's kind of a cool idea. I mean, uh, I, I'm glad the way that they kept it the way they did. Uh, but, you know, we definitely been in some games in there where it would have been pretty nice and cozy. You didn't be able to have a, <laughs> a game like that in a bowl or in a uh, dome. So I think the sunsets are worth it personally to keep it. <laughs> yeah, the sunsets are nice. The sunsets are nice. I, I, I just love, uh, I love that that look when you get to see up and over, especially up by close to the press box, uh, uh, you know, and you get to see the hills and mm -hmm. you get to see all the trees change over the, you know, if you go there from the first game throughout the last game and every other week you're going and seeing, you see the changes of the trees, you get to see the hills, the Coburg Hills off to the north, and I just love the that side of it alone uh obviously being in the stadium is great where my seats are we're, we're really down low but up in the top i really like that view of up at the top and being able to see the whole thing so yeah there really isn't a bad seat in there they say that about a lot of uh places but i really don't think there's a bad seat in there no there is not uh and and i i do think that when they redid it they redid it in the most beautiful fashion they could have um uh, I, I, I think that they did a great job with it and, and still with the idea of possibly doing the second half, but I, I, I don't, I don't ever feel like I need to see the second half done. I, I would, I would much rather see Autzen at full capacity at 60,000 than have empty seats at 70 something thousand. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's zoom into 1989, right? Um, up until this point, Brooks has had, uh, two wins, two wins, two years of six wins that are like kind of asterisks. Back to two wins, two wins, four wins, six wins, five, five, six, six. We got an eight-win season in 1989. It's incredible. First of all, how is it like, again, like Reed was saying, like by today's standards, why is this dude even still around? But I mean, more so like we made a bowl game. 
You made the Independence Bowl. Did you go to that bowl game? What, what was it like in 1989? That was that was not a game that I physically went to. Uh, Don't blame you. It was it was, but our family bought like probably 10, 15 tickets. Oh, wow. you know, to get into that game, the whole thing was we had to buy our way into it. You know, we were at the very end, and we promised that we were going to buy tickets and in huge numbers. And so they came back to us. Duck Athletic Fund came back to us and said, "Hey." We need you guys to just buy tickets for this thing. We're like, okay, cool. You know, jump, you say how high. Um, but no, that game, uh, my family did not go to, or I did not go to, my aunt did. Um, but, uh, you know, that was 89. You know, uh, my dad wore that Independence Bowl hat for probably five years. <laughs> that gear, we rocked the hell out of that gear. I had those sweatshirts. I had the shirts. Um, that was just an unbelievable time. You know, there was, there was such a buzz, you know, that, that era of Bill Musgrave really changed kind of the perspective of, of, of Oregon football. You know, the, the days were, you know, Rich Brooks was a running offense. He really did. He was, he was, you know, kind of under the same thing as, you know, ground Chuck, you know, they used to call it with the Steelers and the Seahawks, you know, and, uh, and, and it just, it was, it was that era where they were just, they were lining up and they were running the ball and, and, and Oregon just didn't have the talent to run the ball that well. There were, there were some pretty good running backs though in the eighties. Uh, Lattenberry was a guy from the uh, Milwaukee area, great track guy. And Derek Lavelle, Derek Lavelle up to that point was probably the best running back outside of obviously some of the great ones uh, in, in, in the history before that, like Mel Renfro. Uh, or or Bobby Moore, you know, who 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 actually played both running back and wide receiver at an absolute elite level for Oregon. Um, but you know, I, that end of the late '80s was really interesting time because, you know, the the movement had been started. You know, you started to see ESPN cover football a little bit more. You started to see uh, uh, locally. We started to have uh, Oregon Sports Network. And started to have more more buy-in for our, our local media sources, being able to promote the game. We have uh, the Rich Brooks show that's airing after every uh, game. You know, we we didn't get to be on television that much. You know, I'll just give you another insight here. You know, growing up, you know, Jerry Allen was my lifeline. I listened to Jerry since day one. I've I've, I've told him, you know, him and Don both Essig. You know, I say, you know, I, I feel like Don's the voice of heaven. If I ever get to heaven, you're like, oh, welcome yeah. to heaven. You know, because that's that's all I've heard at Matt Court and at Austin State in my whole life. So Jerry Allen, same thing, you know, we were not on television. So, you know, most, maybe one game a year, maybe. And, uh, and, 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 and that game, we probably got shelled by Washington or, uh, you know, USC or UCLA or something. So the 89 bowl game was, was huge. And, uh, that year was really, really important year for, for everything in, 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 in uh, the Ducks history going forward. And that 89 game, I, I still think of as being one of the absolute all-time best. And now the next year, we did go, the the, the Freedom Bowl. Mm-hmm. And that is my first bowl game. Uh, that's in Anaheim. And that's the game, uh, Colorado State, where we went for two at the end of the game and mm-hmm. lost the game uh, going for two. So. Which we did win the Independence Bowl. Uh, we beat Tulsa, I think. Yes, oh, won the Independence Bowl. Yes, no, that was that was huge. Yeah. It was very cold. Shreveport, Louisiana, it was very cold. All the friends who went down there said it was absolutely horrible experience. Got to get the win, but it was a horrible experience. It was not what we'd been thinking bowl game experiences were like. No, it was barely above freezing, and it was 
not a great game, but got the victory. And like you said, Freedom Bowl, back-to-back -back bowl games for the first time in school history, as far as I can tell, unless you count that the Rose Bowl appearances around the World War One. but... Sweet. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, and you could and you could feel the the, the not only you could feel uh, uh, the the thing turning a little bit, but it started to get a little more popular. Uh, mm -hmm. You started to get a little bit better recruits coming in. You started to get a little bit more access nationally or whatever, and it was it was a good deal. Yeah, I mean, ninety one off season uh, for a lot of different reasons, um, but hey, ninety two, you go back to the Independence Bowl. I mean, 93, pedaling along, five and six, almost make a bowl game. Like, there was just, I mean, like you said, it's building up, but, like, I don't think anybody expected 94 to become what it did. I mean, we're going to do a separate episode on that entire season, but, like, what awesome. was, like, you see a couple, like, AP rankings in here, I mean, for reference, like, just dodging in and out of the AP poll at the time. Like, again, back-to-back -back bowl games was a reason to be really really excited and i think that kind of puts a good like puts it into perspective a little bit of like just how bad this this program was for so long like again we're we're, we're highlighting seasons here like yeah 16 33 like 48 every season we're not mentioning is just filled with pain and yeah, like there, there's, there's big wins here and there. Like maybe, you know, you beat the Beavers at the end of the season, you win a big game against, you know, one of the Cali, the LA schools or UW um, here and there. But like, was, this was unheard of. And even that by those standards, like it's not that good still. <laughs> I mean, by no. our standards, at least nowadays. No, no. And you know, again, I think there, there's there's something to be said about that little time frame right there. You know, early 90s, um, you know, again, we're, we're, we're starting to pick things up. College football starting to gain some popularity. It, it, it's it's kind of changing a little bit. ESPN starting to cover it a little bit more. There's kind of some more buzz happening. Um, we're trying to fill in the gaps. We're trying to do something different. Um, at this point in time, you know, Nike does not have any sort of correlation with the Ducks. Obviously, with a lot of the guys wear Nike shoes, but there's no real Nike uniforms at that point. There's Nike doesn't do football uniforms. They don't do gloves. They don't do any, any sort of other sort of stuff with it. Um, all our gear was Champion or Russell Athletic. Um, and so even, even at the duck store, you know, you don't really have all the swag yet. You don't really have all the gear. You just have the regular stuff that any other school would have. Um, and then, and then it's slowly kind of trying to build now, now Nike at its, on its own level is just exploding with the Nike, you know, um, uh, Air Jordan line and everything else. And, you know, I kind of. I was talking about this with another uh, uh, group of guys talking about Oregon football, and you know, I kind of compared it to what happened with Nike. You know, in the in, in the early '80s, you know, what Nike was was a running company. You know, Nike was you know looking at the, they were marathon shoes, they were track shoes, they they got into uh, basketball, but they didn't really have a huge presence in basketball. They had the Air Force One, 1982, first shoe with Air. They slowly start to build the thing, but when they had the Air Jordan One, it just exploded, and the fact that you have Air Jordan One with Michael Jordan's rookie year and 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 all the stuff that goes with it, and then he breaks his foot, 
And they really are in a very difficult time. It's this point where it's like, okay, we've got the Golden Goose, but now the Golden Goose is going to leave to go to Adidas because the shoe doesn't work for him. They doesn't, they don't have the contract all the way out. They just have it on the short term. And it was a real terrible situation, possibly. That's when they bring in Tinker. And Tinker kind of saves the day. He creates the jump man. He, write, he does the Jordan 3. He brings Jordan in on it. Uh, uh, he really gets his feedback on it, which they didn't do for the first two shoes. Um, and, and it really kind of changed how the approach that they went about for making these shoes and, and, and what they were doing for the whole, the whole line in general, they wanted to do something totally different than what the rest of Nike was doing. And, uh, and so they did. And at that exact same time, you know, they got with Wyden and Kennedy, you know, again, this all comes from Portland, you know, you have. You know, Wyden and Kennedy coming in and doing different sort of advertising campaigns. They bring in, you know, Spike Lee, the Mars Blackman character from She's Gotta Have It. And they have this kind of whole kind of street campaign uh, that had, had never really been done at Nike. Nike was, for the most part, a white guy running company. And they were turning it very quickly into an urban uh, uh, feel across the board. And this, was, this, this changed Nike forever. And, and, and it's still going. They're still selling these retros like crazy, right? Um, Oregon football did something very similar. I think when they brought in Chip, uh, Mike Bellotti was like, you know what? We've tried doing it this way, that way, the other way. Let's try to do it maybe a different way. Uh, they embraced the uniform connection. They embraced uh, bringing kids in to help design the uniforms, uh, getting feedback from the players. I still think to this day the, the diamond plate, uh, uh, shoulder pads was one of the coolest things they did because that was a player's idea to do that, and then and then it took off, and 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 so to have that kind of connection, have that sort of telling those stories and whatnot, I think is very significant because the coolest thing to me was after Chip, you know, in the first couple of years they they kind of went for that whole thing of like you know tradition eats you know turkey on Thanksgiving, tradition does this, you know, we're not trying to be traditional. We, we don't have this long history that we can look at and be so proud of. You know, we're a fairly, you know, the, the, the rest of the country calls us young money, you know, or new money, you know. And we, we, we haven't been here as long as schools like Ohio State, Michigan. We don't have that sort of history that, uh, you know, UCLA or USC or Washington or whatever does. So we're trying to create this new thing. Well, Nike was kind of in the same boat. You know, they were up against Adidas, they were up against Converse, they were up against all these, you know, big time uh, companies. And now they're 10 times the size of these companies. They bought Converse at a fraction of a price. The fact that, I mean, Nike owns Converse is crazy to think about when Converse was the shoe that every American wore for the most part in the 1950s and 60s. Everybody wore Converse. Talk about a monopoly. I mean, so I think it's really to draw those correlations. Not, not to say that Nike... Uh, and Oregon are in the same level. Nike is dominant, obviously. But what Oregon's kind of tried to do was do something different. Be the different school. Be the school that might be unique and might have an opportunity for kids to go to. Like you talked about having recruiting and having, having dangling you know, the carrot. I still think that DeAnthony Thomas is probably the most important recruit we've ever had in the last modern time because of what he did there's kids coming this kid seven mcgee who's coming in this year has said he wants to be like DeAnthony thomas like it's still working for oregon so there was a time frame at the end of the 1980s where it felt like it was starting to change and uh throughout the 1990s you saw that change 
Um, and it's just, again, as a guy who got to see that whole thing happen, I, I couldn't be more proud of uh, the Ducks' uh, success that we we're seeing. And then the fact that it fell off a cliff after Helfrich, I predicted. I was like, at some point in time, we're going to wake up. It's like it was all a dream. And we're back to square one again. And now we have to fight back to get to where we were. And, and it was all over. And, and and it did happen. So I love the fact that where they're at right now. Cristobal kind of reminds me. The Cristobal coaching staff kind of reminds me of Rich Brooks' era. You know, they're, they're trying to go a little bit more into the family aspect of it. They're going to try to have long-term success. Cristobal has talked about he's not leaving. You know, these people want to say he's going to go to the next job. He's going to jump Miami. Chris Ball keeps saying over and over, I'm not leaving. He's got young kids here. I could see Chris Ball being here for 10 years. And that's just unheard of in the modern coaching era to have a guy who has success last that long. But that's kind of the situation. Obviously, it's different, the success rate, Rich Brooks to Chris Ball. But on the level is, is that I think he's really trying to build something here that is going to be a lasting effect. I mean, look at Rich Brooks. Rich Brooks was coaching these guys, screaming at them, you know, spitting in their helmet like we talked about. And then these guys went and became the coach and staff and worked with them for years and years and years. I mean, Don Pelham, Steve Greatwood, the list goes on and on and on where you had assistant coaches who were former players of this guy, you know, and they go out and they're going on to his fishing cabin and, you know, Metolius and, you know, they're, they're great buddies now. So I think the same thing can be said a lot for Cristobal that he's building something right now that I think is, you know, a lot of people are pretty excited about. Something that technically falls outside our time frame by a couple of years that we're doing tonight, but that I still want to ask you about is what was it like when Brooks left? Because obviously you have this unprecedented season in 94 um, and then he leaves, you hire Bilotti from within, which again, that, that continuation is a theme that pops back up multiple times in Oregon history. Like what was kind of the, I mean, because I know what it was like to to lose Bilotti and go from Bilotti to Kelly. And, you know, you're still kind of ambitious or whatever, but you don't really know what's going to happen. What was the vibe like when Brooks left? Was it like, oh, this is all going to hell or whatever? Or were you gonna No, be- no, no. It was actually, I think, I think a lot of Duck fans were pretty happy about it. I think they knew that Bilotti was the younger, more innovative coach, and he was already the uh, offensive coordinator. He, we, you know, Brooks had had different offensive coordinators as well that were not successful. So when Bilotti came in, you know, Bilotti had a lot of success quickly mm-hmm. and, 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 and more success through the air. I think that's another big deal is to understand that, you know, during Rich Brooks' early tenure, it was all on the ground. You know, he was not, you know, even Reggie Ogburn was running, a, you know, an option quarterback, basically. Um, and uh, and so, you know, when, when Bilotti came in, they started airing it out a little bit. You know, Bilotti is a little bit more of the West Coast offense, more of a Bill Walsh type of guy. And uh, and I think Duck fans were really excited about bringing in uh, when Mike Bilotti came over. Because, you know, it's also kind of like we got to graduate Rich Brooks into the NFL. And that was a big deal for the Duck fans as well. Like, one of our guys made it. Like, he went to the NFL from Oregon and, and you know, that Oregon team, you know, the, even that 94 team, you know, if we want to talk about that for a second, you know, that was a wild year. You know, Oregon lost to Hawaii that year. They lost up at Pullman that year you know, when, the, when, when the Cougs were not that good. And, you know, that year was wild. I mean, they only won nine games that year. So, and they barely escaped in some of them. Yeah. And, 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 and to be honest, that the last day of that season, when we went and played up at uh, Corvallis, mm-hmm. USC was playing UCLA. If UC, if USC wins that game, they would have gone. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, UCLA beat them right before our game started. And we were like, oh, man, if we win this game, we're going to the Rose Bowl. So, 
again, I think Rich Brooks, you know, the, the 94 thing really was a great send-off because you got to go to the Rose Bowl. That was such a gigantic thing. I think so many people were just so drunk at that point with, with enthusiasm and excitement for the program. It really didn't matter what Brooks was doing. Nobody thought we were going to go to the Rose Bowl again the next year. Nobody ever thought we were actually going to go to the Rose Bowl ever again. I mean, literally, there were people who were like, this is going to be the one chance I get to see the Ducks in Pasadena. I'm not giving it up. I mean, the last time we were there was in 58, right? So it's like, <laughs> wow, you know, and, and it's not like we saw the Beavs go there much more than us either. So it's like, you know, it's a tough, tough thing to get to. And, and I still think that way. I still, to this day, if the Ducks go to the Rose Bowl this next year, I'm going because I don't know when we might got we might not go again. I mean, it's just I still kind of have that mindset as a maybe a PTSD uh, <laughs> '80s Duck fan. It's interesting that you note like the the kind of West Coast passing offense um, of that era because I mean, my parents would always tell me like, "Oh, I had class with Bill Musgrave, like Bill Musgrave, Bill Musgrave, like he was a big deal." And I'm you know, little ten year old Charlie is like, "Who? Like, why do I care about this guy? Like, I've never heard his name." Ever before why why should I be interested in this dude but like again in perspective it's like a big deal that I mean that a guy that good is like even playing in Oregon or that Oregon has a quarterback that good that yeah and I think that's it you know I, I I like Bill Musgrave you know we also had a guy Chris Miller okay you have got to go yeah, back a little bit so Chris Miller Chris Miller was actually kind of I always relate him to kind of being like Justin Herbert you know he's the local kid uh didn't get the heavy recruiting out of high school uh, went to Oregon, was also the first uh, or the only freshman to start uh, uh, until Herbert. Mm-hmm. Okay, So it's kind of weird that they both have the same sort of vibe, both from Sheldon, both four-year starters, both went in the NFL. Now, Chris Miller did not have the amount of success, obviously, that Herbie did, and I don't think anybody has, but Chris Miller was a great quarterback. I mean, great quarterback. And, and so with the amount of talent that he had, Oregon did try to throw the ball a little bit more. And, uh, and, and, and then they got into it, you know, Oregon for years during this time, one of the things we passed over is, you know, during this whole seventies, eighties, Oregon was the team that colleges would pay to play early in the season, just beat the hell out of them. 50 to nothing. We went down to Nebraska. I think it was 55 to nothing, 86, you know, just, just getting just shelled, not even having a prayer, not even having a chance. And, um, so like, not like, yeah, you get paid for that, but not only is it humiliating, but it, it sets you back every time, right? Oh, every, yeah. And, and then, yeah. Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. A sacrificial lamb is no place to be. And, and Bill Taylor was the guy who ended that, if I'm correct. Yes, yeah. he did. He did. And, and, um, but Bill Musgrave, you know, Musgrave was a guy who was not incredibly highly recruited, but really, really came on, but he was just a winner, man. He was like our version of Joe Montana. The guy was just the the the, the classic gamer, you know, and uh, we had great success with him. And then the year he broke his collarbone, you know, uh, I think it was the last maybe four or five games the rest of the year, didn't win one of them, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, so that kind of goes down kind of like the Vernon Adams year where, you know, every game that Vernon played, they won. You know, even the, the, the game where he, he missed half of the game, they lost the other half of the game. I mean, it's like, it's crazy to think about the impact these quarterbacks make. But Bill Musgrave, uh, there were some great running backs that he had. So he had some good, he had good receivers. You know, there, there's we've always had talent at Oregon, but it's rarely you get to put it all together. The key thing is the defense. It, my dad has always said this. If Oregon has a good defense, they'll be in it. And, and now, especially if Oregon has good defense, they're 
elite. So, um, you know, yeah, back you in those days, poster right behind yeah, you. yeah, right here, 94. This is a, this is original, and this even has the sticker. They gave out these stickers. A hundred years of Oregon football. So talk <laughs> about that. Isn't that crazy to think about? But um, yeah, I, I, you know, there, the defense was a game changer, and it started in that 89-90 season. Uh, it had some really good defensive players, some good defensive ends, some good defensive tackles, and it's kind of started. Uh, 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 be able to stop somebody. That was the key thing. Is you know, football wise, you got to stop somebody and um, and flip the field and all those kind of things that you know coaches talk about every year. That those are the things that win games. Just like basketball coaches talk about rebounding. The average person doesn't want to talk about rebounding, but without rebounding, you don't win games. And so uh, the same thing goes with the defense. So it was really kind of a cool era. Uh, that '90s era. I was in high school. I was in high school, 1992, 1996. Um, and so you know, going back to that thing about the Rose Bowl, we didn't think we were ever going to win another one or even be close. The next year we went to the Cotton Bowl, which felt like a BCS type game. It felt like what was now like the Fiesta Bowl or a New Year's Six Bowl. Um, where So we didn't get to the Rose Bowl, but we got this other great bowl. And that probably is one of the more disappointing losses in Oregon's history. That was a game that Oregon was really excited for. They were super pumped about that game, that Cotton Bowl game. And when they lost that game, that's where it starts. That's where Phil comes together after that game. Very famous moment. And they asked Mike Blotty, what do you need? It's just the classic one sentence, right? And and they say they need a practice facility. They need to be able to practice in, out of the rain and whatnot. And it uh, makes sense to me, right? And anybody who wants to party in that Mishovsky Center knows how important that is to the game day experience of Autzen Stadium as well. So, um, yeah, that was a big deal. And, uh, you know, it just is what it is. Uh, uh, the Mike Bellotti era ch- changed it completely. But going back to what I was saying about that that Nike thing, that when, when, when Nike, with, with the uh, idea of the, the Air Jordan, it was the rebranding of the Oregon O that did it. It was the changing of the color scheme. Tinker was involved with all of this. Mm-hmm. You know, the O the O historically is Hayward Field in the middle and Autzen Stadium on the outside. Like it means something. It's not just a, a letter. It's a symbol, right? And it's and it shows the history right there. And um, now you can just see the very corner of it on ESPN and know that it's RO, you know, just yeah, the shape of one little anywhere, edge, you know, it's R. anywhere, everywhere. And, you know, we had this interlocking, uh, UO for years and, you know, it's just collegiate I, type. I personally always loved that because again, oh, of course. I grew up with the, the O and sure. so, like the throwback sure. was always really cool to me, especially with like the, uh, the duck coming running out of the oh i always thought that was awesome i always thought oh yeah oh yeah and 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 they always want to make the distinction of two feet or one foot right if you got the one foot donald or the two foot donald so they changed that they added another foot on him so it wasn't look like he was falling over (laughs) um but no that and 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 that all happened with joey you know joey is one year younger than me we both grew up in southeast portland we know he's an all saints kid central catholic and I went to, you know, uh, CYO. We played, we went to the same camps and whatnot. He would be playing the piano. All the girls would be going around, you know, and he'd be playing the piano, confirmation retreat or whatever we went to, all that CYO stuff. And, um, and, and when he got posted on that billboard in New York City with the brand new uniform, with the O 
it was it was just uh, that's the time that it changed that's the time that it changed and that was the equivalent of that that air jordan era that thing where it could have could have gone bad you know and 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 it didn't it went to the complete next level that no one at nike anticipated at all what was going to happen from 1986 to 87 to 88 89 to 90 you know all the stuff they did with Andre Agassi and the tennis and everything, all that came from their Jordan line. And the same thing goes with Oregon. All of this recent success can be dated to the fact that they rebranded, they went to the O, they went to the different color scheme, they went with the different helmets, and they also won. You can't yeah. do all that and then not win. And then, you know, when the Bevos had their success and then we had our success year back-to-back years, you know, it felt like Oregon was now on the map for college football. That felt like that was a big step in the right direction. Obviously, it faltered from there a little bit. Oregon, you know, it's just three years after that or four years after that. Don't even go to a bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's ups and downs there. But I tend to think that that Joey team might end up being one of the best teams in Oregon history. You know, um, some of the most NFL talent was on that team. Uh, just, just an unbelievable time. And, and that team is, is only just one step away from that Rose Bowl year. It's just a couple years after that. It's not that far away. I mean, I was in high school, uh, during the Rose Bowl era. And then I was in college during the, uh, Fiesta Bowl. I was just out of college during that time. So a couple, couple, uh, blocked punts away from, <laughs> from sealing it. <laughs> it's all right. We, we got tied back later on. Um, but but yeah, I mean, it's interesting because that uh, 01 team is overlooked a lot. Um, a, a lot of times because like we just didn't play like super good teams. And when we did, we didn't like blow them out or anything um, until like the final game, which I think that's a lot of justification right there. But anyways, I mean, like, again, you talk about like just it building up like in I have in front of me, I have a spreadsheet open with all the bowl appearances, like by season, you know, and like it just these these years upon years of blank spaces. I mean, like I said earlier, nowadays, if we don't make a bowl game, like the sky is falling. Right. But back then it was like, oh, wow, like we made it to the Liberty Bowl. Are you kidding me? Like, this is insane. This is the next level. So, I mean, that that's really what we're trying to highlight with a lot of this, this episode is like there's so, so much terribleness throughout the years that I mean the bright spots really stuck out and I mean ultimately it was about like taking our like taking hold of our opportunities really I mean we get one good season in the 90s well good you know one great season in the 90s and turn that into what it is now so really just a crazy evolution yeah, I, I tend to think there's 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 kind of a lost era in there. You're right about uh, that that late 90s era. You know, I mean, I, I still think Saladin McCullough, one of the best running backs we've ever had at Oregon. Um, uh, some great, great quarterback play in that time. T- Tony Graziani came in afterward, one of the greatest quarterbacks. Nobody wants to talk about him at Oregon. Um, there, there was some success there. It just, just took some time. And then, you know, with the Joey era, and then moving forward throughout that time, uh, you know, Mike Bellotti kind of became an institution, you know, and, you know, seeing Bellotti go into that last year, uh, my son's first game that he goes to is uh, Bellotti's last game down in San Diego, Holiday Bowl, uh, Holiday Bowl in 08. 
And uh, it's just amazing to think about where they were that that year before that. 07, with you know, Chip comes in, you know, they beat Michigan uh, at Michigan, and it's just, I mean, it's just crazy. The the I tend to think that if you didn't have that success of the Chip era, we would really look back on that Joey era with just unbelievable respect uh, because I don't think anybody really had done what that team did. No. And I mean, they even had a shout to be in the national championship game, like, yeah. which I don't know how you feel about that, but. <laughs> well, I, I mean, yeah, me, Miami. Yeah. It would have been, it would have probably been a bloodbath. People think, Oh yeah, we're going to play just like this year with, you know, uh, Washington. So I go, go full circle with this Washington Twitter, you know, this last year with that Washington game being canceled, you know, of, of course, when the game's canceled, you know, your team was going to win. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, I tend to think, I mean, if you want to talk about one of the greatest teams of all time in college football history, those early 2000 Miami teams was just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. So I tend to think that would have been a bloodbath either way. Um, and, and you know, Oregon and Oregon State both kind of got into that situation year after year, uh, those two back-to-back years where the Beavs could have been in the national championship. They blew the hell out of Notre Dame. We blew the hell out of Colorado. And now you think about this game is so crazy that now it's a Pac-12 matchup, you know. Yeah. But at that time, Colorado was really doing some things, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you mentioned Miami. Like, they they built it kind of the traditional way, I, I tend to think. Like, they did a lot of things untraditionally. But, I mean, at the end of the day, ah! they got a coach. They got a coach in there in the 80s, right? They just started winning. Right. And, I mean, they started winning national championships with these incredible pools of talent. And like we've had to grind for it. Miami, the Miami story is its own whole thing. I think you could do a thirty for thirty on almost every one of those years. I mean that Schellenberger era, and then you go into Jimmy Johnson era. I mean, talk about the cocaine down there. The 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 the. the I didn't uh, even wipe my nose for that. Though. Yeah, right. The <laughs> boosters down there with the jet boats, and I mean, oh my god, there's some crazy stuff there. And now we've got a coach. Who's a part of it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've always thought like uh, Miami and Oregon had a lot of similarities. I thought that was cool, even with like the logos. Like they're. I agree. Kind of looks I, like- I would love to see those two play each other. I think that oh, would yeah. be fantastic. Yeah, totally. The, the only difference is probably the local talent base is a little different. <laughs> a little different down there. <laughs> hey, man, do they have a rookie yeah. year quarterback though coming out of Miami? Oh. We're starting to get a little bit more D1 talent out here. But, yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, for years there was times where there weren't 10 D1 players coming out of the state of Oregon. I mean, if you, I, I, you don't have 10. I mean, you can't even have a basketball team with that. So, no, uh, Oregon's always had to push the recruiting, you know, uh, up and down the West Coast. They tend to lose out on some of the best in-state talent year after year. We try to get some here and there, uh, but th- this Cristobal thing with risk recruiting is completely different. I mean, when would we have ever thought that National Signing Day is a day to celebrate in our you know history? I mean, that's just even during the chip care chip, chip era, we didn't have anything like we have right now. So now we just now expectations are very high. I mean, now it's the exact opposite. I mean, now you go to Autzen Stadium, these people are screaming at the players like. You know, I, I look back at some of these guys, are you even a fan of this team? Like, do you root for them? Or are you, like, mad that they're not winning by 40 right now? It's the first half. Yeah, you realize uh, this is a decent program at the very least, right? Like, you can go to other football games and get mad there. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, so expectations have just blown up so heavy. And, 
Uh, and I get it. I get it. Everybody wants their team to win. But at the end of the day, you also got to realize these are just college kids, man. I mean, maybe you get a, a guy who's a fifth-year senior like Anthony Brown is right now, a sixth-year senior, whatever you want to call him, who's basically a grown man. Or if you go to BYU, all those guys you know, coming off the mission or whatever. But most of these guys are 22 or younger. I mean, that, that's young. It's one step above high school football. It's not even close to the NFL. It's not even close. So I think people kind of get a little bit twisted on the uh, entertainment value of what these college players owe them as fans. I, I think it's a little blown out of proportion. But it's also a really tough game. I mean, football, if anybody's played it, you know it, you know it's a grind. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's four quarters. It's an absolute mental grind. It's a physical grind. And... The fact that these guys come out and work so hard for the Ducks, put on the helmet, you know, uh, do as much as they can. They're in there getting taped. They're doing treatment. They're getting all this kind of stuff, you know, just to just to put on the uniform. I think of Sean Dollars right now, a guy who's had maybe what ten carries his whole career. You know, oh, looking we're, we're at presidents of the Sean Dollars fan club. Hey, love Sean, man. Great guy, great family, and you know. A guy who, you know, like I'm saying, maybe 10 carries total, you know, and every time he gets it, we're like, oh, my God, the fan base is going crazy, right? He had that one play in the Rose Bowl, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And and uh, and then and then here he is, he's working hard, and he, and he blows the knee, you know? And it's like one of those deals where now he's going to be out, you know, he's not going to be right this year, or maybe he will be, but he's not going to be the same thing, you know? I mean, it, 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 he could be done. I mean, not, 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 not to throw negativity on it but that this is you're one step away from an injury ending your whole career that you've worked forward and, and and just two three years ago he's got everybody in his ear saying he's going to be an nfl running back he's next to ladanian tomlinson he's this that and the other so it's hard that these guys have to deal with all this hype not to mention the women that are after them the other dudes the thirsty everywhere trying to get their attention i mean the media asking stupid questions of these guys i mean i can't i could i couldn't believe being college athlete these days i mean it's just wild yeah it really is i mean kind of happens when and again a lot of what we talked about today is like all this entire system was just born out of love for the game like if it weren't for people just being literally insanely obsessed with football like we just we wouldn't have it i mean again we had people dying every year on the field and nobody would care right yeah, I, I, I remember a story that maybe Teddy Roosevelt uh, uh, was a big mm -hmm. fan of, of college football and, and his son maybe was injured or uh, something maybe at like Princeton or something like this. And, um, and and he was a big advocate for trying to clean up the game or whatever. But, you know, now we're in the same situation, you know, CTE, everything else out there, uh, you know, saying, you know, don't have head injuries. You know, I came from the era where, you know, guys had guys would get their bell rung so hard they'd go to the sideline they'd be throwing up and the and the coach wouldn't even let them take the helmet off you know you don't take your helmet off you throw up through the face mask and these guys are going back out are you all right now okay get up back out there you know like you said you know only having 11 guys on the field i remember when i was in high school we had a kid who got a or a running back and our, our linebacker, and he got a, a, a stinger on the shoulder, and his arm was completely dead. He could not lift his arm up. He's our running back. And he goes to the sideline. He's like, Coach, I can't lift my arm. He says, Get back in there. This ball's going to you. We're running the ball. And the quarterback turned the ball to the guy, handed it off. To, and the guy was like, I can't even pick up the ball. And he just laid down. <laughs> and you see him on the film, just get the ball and just lay down. 
you know, it's a tough game out there, man. And uh, I think I think you got to really respect these guys. You know, uh, you know, to see the, the the passion, like you're saying, is is one thing, but also to see the income is the other. You know, this COVID really put a spotlight on everything, and 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 the amount of money that these schools generate from the football programs alone is just astronomical. We already knew, obviously, the impact, but talk about even more pressure you're putting on an 18, 19 year old kid that he's got to have the whole budget of the whole university depend on whether or not those their team is good or not. I mean, that that puts an extra amount of pressure on these guys. So it is a crazy system. You know, football was born, like we said, out of the college game. Now it, it resides, you know, college game has really exploded. Um, and, and it is, is amazing. But every single time I turn on ESPN, they're talking about the NFL. I mean, these guys can't get enough football. It's 365 days a year. They're constantly talking about football. I get tired of it personally. I like football in the fall. I, I, I'll watch a little spring game stuff here and there, but I'm way into basketball during the winter. I'm watching every basketball game. I get, I get, now I'm into the, I'm watching the softball. I'm watching the baseball. I'm watching, you know, I'm, I, I like to be, see, I'm a golfer. So I like to try to stay seasonal. Oregon's got a great golf team as well. So there's a lot to watch you know for uh, uh at oregon and they don't get so absorbed there's a lot of guys who are literally just football or nothing all they do is watch football they love football they want to talk more about football and i don't know if that says more about them personally or not but uh it is what it is uh those guys love it and they fill the stadium and they do they do a good job for us you know the 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 ability for to fill that stadium and then to have people you know donate money to the university and get hooked into that sort of mindset. You know, I think that's, that's what the whole university system is based on. You know, uh, we need alumni, uh, to be strong, to give back and, and to be successful on their own terms and, and to help build these programs. And everybody want to talk about Phil Knight paying all this money. Well, you know, the only buildings in that whole thing that are named after him is, you know, obviously the basketball arena named after his son and then HDC named after the moms. But, you know, Mashoski Center is not named Phil Knight. You know, Casanova Center is not named Phil Knight. So there's a lot of different people at work here. And uh, obviously there's a lot of there's a lot of money out here, Timber Barons and the like, uh, that are going to put money toward the, the university for their own sake uh, or for the university's sake. So uh, I think it's a great system. And Oregon's relationship with Nike, I think, sets it apart completely. It makes it a lot of fun. Uh, to be able to see, you know, every year you get the new jerseys or every couple of years you get to see what, you know, the new jerseys or whatever else. The, you know, this year's Ohana jersey I thought was one of the best they've ever done. I was super impressed with that. And uh, um, so, and, and and also, you know, built by guys at, at Oregon. You know, obviously, uh, Daryl Hawkins been a major player there. Uh, Matrell McGraw, another major player. Bronson Yim, other guys who are up at Nike who have done a really good job uh, turning what their skill set is on the field and now turn it into a uh, executive work at nike pretty cool yeah shoot man we've hit the two hour mark uh i think shoot i think this is totally enough uh is there anything you guys want to want to throw in there from the pre-94 era before we wrap it up i think i think i'm good um but yeah thank you so much for uh coming on ryan it was a lot of fun mm -hmm. to have you um yeah, do you want to, any place people can find your work, your YouTube channel, sports? Oh yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't try to promote my brand all that much. <laughs> I just, I just, I go on YouTube. You know, I, I, I started doing sports chat uh, probably the first, maybe the first year, second year of Chip or whatever, because we, you know, YouTube started in, in 05, I think. I think I started doing this maybe in 09. 
Um, and I did it just literally just to kind of talk about the Ducks. You know, there wasn't a lot of uh, action out there. I had a buddy of mine who I grew up with, a great football player, played in the Shrine game, great football player, and he really knows the game well. So he was kind of my guy. That we would kind of talk each week about what was going on or whatever, and we try to build the program. He went on, got married, moved to LeGrand, um, and doing his thing, and, and that's great. But you know, for me, I, I, I just do, I just do it. I, I don't, I don't, I'm not on Twitter that much. I, I, I post here and there a little bit, uh, Instagram here or there a little bit, but you know, I just do my thing. I'm, I'm, I'm a regular guy. I'm a dad. I'm a teacher. I'm a coach. You know, I'm just a regular guy. Uh, I'm not trying to do anything that different, but in the last year, I have had a lot of fun though, doing interviews with players. Uh, I talked with, uh, Pat Pearson at the U of O and got the green light there. What I was doing during COVID was actually kind of an interesting thing. I I, I had a relationship with the Breeze family and Brady and a couple other people uh, who I had known in, in the media uh, world and fans or whatever. And I, I came together with a Zoom call kind of idea to bring everybody together. We didn't have the spring game. We didn't have anything. And I brought like, you know, uh, 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 media guys, you know, like, uh, Mike Yam or other guys in, and then it would have players come in and then fans. And it was kind of just a chat, interactive chat. And out of that, they said, Hey, you guys should be doing interviews or something. And so now we're kind of trying to build it. I'm going to, I'm trying to talk with the, the university about trying to get a little bit better uh, knowledge of who the freshmen are that are coming in and kind of trying to get a series going of, you know, who are the freshmen that are out there. Um, I really like some of the guys who are at the school. You know, Max Torres is a guy who I've had a lot of contact with, and and he he asks good questions. There's a lot of guys in the media ask terrible questions. You know, when uh, Krapia gets on there and Cristobal rolls his eyes yeah, or whatever. Just, you know. Every did time. You see the, did you see the interview the last time with him where he said uh, talking about what were you doing when you they they talk about this? There's a there's a the show The Young Rock or something, and they said yeah. there's a did you end his career in an Oklahoma right. drill or something. And, and, and Cristobal's answer is, well, if James keeps asking me these same questions, I'm going to do the same thing to him or something along <laughs> those lines. I thought that was hilarious, but no, I think, you know, Max does a great job. A bunch of those guys, um, you know, the J school, you know, J school is one of the best things we've got going on in Oregon. And, um, and so I really like doing that. Just trying to promote the brand a little bit, let guys talk about their own personal stories a little bit. And, you know, um, uh, so I've had a lot of fun with that. So I'll do that over the off season. I never try to bug the guys too much about it. Uh, it's always pretty low key from my end, but, uh, no, I have a lot of fun talking about the ducks. And then it, during the year, I try to break down, you know, uh, uh, the whole college football thing, the pac 12 and then the duck game. And I think it's really fun. A lot of people jump on, I get some, some videos that go crazy, especially during bowl season or whatever, when they, the other side gets a handle of it and they run with it. But you know, I was always a sportsmanship guy growing up. I played all sports growing up all the way through high school. And uh, I've, I've coached, you know, for over 20 years now. And big sportsmanship guy, you know, always got to tip the cap to the other team. Always got to, you know, respect the, the game and respect your opponent and everything. And I think there's a lot of people who don't have that sportsmanship side. They want to mm -hmm. get on the internet. And they want to talk a bunch of junk. And they want to have rile everybody up or whatever. And then as soon as they their team loses, they're real quiet, you know. So I come from that perspective of, like I said, you never know when the shoe's going to fall. You know, you never know when the ball's going to drop and the whole thing's going to be over. I do think the Ducks are set up right now pretty well i really like what's going on right now with the competition between oregon and washington i can't wait for this game this year that's definitely a game in seattle i'm gonna be at if they can allow fans in that stadium especially mm -hmm. after last year and whatnot mm -hmm. um but uh 
no, I just, I, I really just love the U of O, love the school. My whole family is there, multi-generational. My son's already going to, he, he's already got plans to go there. He's a freshman in high school right now. So it's just, you just try to keep the ball rolling. And, you know, I come Catholic school perspective, I just kind of think of like an apostle of the Ducks. You know, you go spread the word, you know. <laughs> These guys, they have to, you know, just go out and just spread the word. And so that's what I'm trying to do for Oregon, try to represent it as best I can in a respectful manner. I don't have all the answers. I'm no expert, but I'm out here just trying to talk about it from my perspective. I watch a lot of sports, and I've been involved with sports my whole life, so... Uh, you know, I try to give it a little bit better insight than maybe some of these guys who are keyboard warriors or whatever, <laughs> who want to talk a lot of junk, you know, and, uh, and, uh, and, and then, and then bigger, bigger picture is, I think, I think it's cool to see what you guys are doing, you know, podcasts or, you know, all these other kind of events that are happening now where you get to kind of really express yourself and all these different avenues to kind of uh, blow it up. So cheers to you guys, man. And go ducks. Yep. Go ducks. Go ducks.